0: you open your Bibles please to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be skipping around a little bit this morning, but um, for time's sake I might just read from Matthew and John and tell you about what's in Luke and Mark. With this 11th study in our Life of Christ Study, we come to the event which launched the Lord Jesus Christ into his public ministry. Finally, we're there. And that event was what? His baptism. Exactly, his water baptism. Everything that we have studied prior to this point in the four gospel accounts has been just essentially basic introductory necessities. Wonderful things. Such as the genealogical records of the Lord Jesus, the angelic announcements which were made to John the Baptist's parents and also to Mary and Joseph. Move that. The births of both John the Baptist and, of course, Jesus. We discussed the Lord's childhood and all about that. We've discussed John the Baptist's ministry and all the corresponding Old Testament prophecies of these and other pre-ministerial events. And these are all, these were all important truths which had to be covered before and had to occur before the king fully grown and mature and ready could leave his place of obscurity up there in Nazareth of northern Galilee and enter onto the front and center pages of history. So after an eternity spent in the glories of heaven, because Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, and after decades spent, tucked away, in despised little Nazareth, the very Son of God put away his saw and his hammer, and he shut the door on his carpentry shop for the last time. After the death of the Lord's stepfather, Joseph, Jesus, as the oldest son of Mary, would have been responsible for the taking care of his mother and all of his uh, at least six younger siblings. Remember, he had at least four brothers. We know because their names are given to us in the scripture. And he had sisters, so we know he had at least two sisters. Well, the, the Lord, being the oldest son, would have been responsible for taking care of them. At the age of 30, which is the age of his baptism when he was launched into his public ministry, um, his brothers would have been old enough to support themselves and also to assume the responsibility of taking care of their mother. And we can assume also that his sisters would have been married by this point in time. If he was 30, regardless of how much later they were born, girls got married at a very young age so his sisters would have been married by this point in time and bible scholars i did say that after the death of jo- joseph bible scholars generally agree that joseph must have died sometime between the lord's, lord's 12th and 30th years on earth and the reason they say that is because he is just conspicuously absent at any time, the family is gathered together. The, you know, whether, where, wherever Mary is, Joseph isn't there, or where the brothers, and, you know, not the sisters, but the brothers, Joseph is just not there. Um, we know he was conspicuously absent at the Lord's first miracle, which was when he changed water into wine at a wedding in Cana. And apparently that was a wedding of some relatives of Mary. And Joseph wasn't there. So they assume that Joseph died. We know he was alive when Jesus was 12, right? Because he took, with Mary, they went to the temple. And um, we had that 12-year-old experience of Jesus in the temple. But by the time he begins his public ministry, Joseph has been removed from the scene. So Jesus righteously fulfilled his obligations to his family his physical family here on earth, as the eldest son of his earthly father. And now he is therefore ready to fulfill his obligations to the whole world as the son of his heavenly father. After thousands of years of of anticipation, you know, ever since God... After the fall of mankind in Adam, back in the garden, after God revealed that wonderful promise to Adam and Eve that one day he would send a redeemer, the promised seed of the woman, just think, after thousands of years of people waiting and waiting in in anticipation, the redeemer king himself appeared before his faithful servant, John the Baptist, for his coronation or his commissioning service. Bethlehem, Egypt, and Nazareth were all left behind, and from this point forward, the Lord would call no place home. The scripture says the foxes have their holes and the birds have their nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head, at least while he was here on earth. Mother, brother, and sister were also left behind. Henceforth, Jesus said, whosoever would do the will of God, the same would be his brother and his sister and his mother, Mark 3.35. So we're going to be looking at the king's commissioning for service, and you can see that this is obviously an important event because the baptism of Christ is mentioned in all four Gospels, and when something is in all four Gospels, take note, it is very important. Everything is important, but this is extra-specially important. We're going to be looking at four subdivisions for our lesson. We'll look at the arrival of the sun. The argument of John, speaking of John the Baptist, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and then the approval of the Father. So we'll begin. I'm going to read Matthew 3.13, the arrival of the Son. But this is also found in Mark 1.9 and Luke 3. I I will just tell you about what those verses say for the sake of time. So let's look at Matthew 3.13. Where it says, then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan, that's speaking of the Jordan River, unto John to be baptized of him. Now, I didn't read Mark 1, 9, but over in Mark 1, 9, we learn that Jesus came, when he came before John to be baptized of him, it says he came from Nazareth of Galilee. Here we just read he came from Galilee. There it says he came specifically from Nazareth of Galilee to be baptized by John the Jordan River. Now, since the time of the Lord's 12-year-old experience in the temple, when he had, remember, astounded the doctors of the law with his great understanding and his answers, and had then willingly subjected himself to his parents and returned to where? Nazareth. To this appearance, and that was when he was 12, from that time to this appearance now of the Lord before John at the Jordan River, the Bible says nothing. So, those, we have 18 years of silence in the Lord's life. Years from 12 to 30. All we know is what the scripture tells us is that he grew. He grew in wisdom, and he grew in um, knowledge, stature, and he grew in favor with man and God, etc. So, we have 18 years of silence. And as you can imagine, men, and I should, probably should include women, love to speculate about things that. They don't know, so there's been a lot of speculation about what occurred during those 18 years, and some have speculated that what the Lord did was, even maybe some of them have said before he was 12 years old, that he lived with the Essenes, and somebody even asked me about that earlier this year, or last year. Did Jesus, Was Jesus raised by the Essenes? You all know who the Essenes were, because we studied them a couple weeks back. They were that monastic group, the ones who really knew the scripture and knew things were corrupt in Judaism and in the temple worship, and yet they made a mistake by hiding their light under a bushel going out to live in the caves near the Dead Sea. Some have said Jesus learned all that he knew from these monastic Essenes during those 18 years. Uh, Others have said, no, he went to the east to live with and learn from the magi or the wise men. Perhaps not the same wise men who had come to him when he was only about two years old to bring him those wonderful gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but perhaps other wise men that knew those wise men. And that's where Jesus learned all of his wisdom. And then others have speculated, especially the Hindu mystics, have said, no, no, he came to India, he went to India. And all that he learned, he learned from the gurus and some maharaj or something like that. Well, is that true to what scripture says Absolutely not. I don't care how much pe- people like to speculate and play their little games. The scripture clearly indicates that the Lord spent the silent 18 years of his life living with his family, where? In Nazareth. When he was 12 years old, he went. He subjected himself to his parents and he went back to live with them in Nazareth. That's what the scripture says. Now when we see him again 18 years later, it says he came from Nazareth of Galilee. Also remember in Mark 6.3... Does anybody remember what that said? No? (laughs) It said that Jesus is this not the carpenter? Now, if Jesus had not been raised by his father up in Nazareth, he wouldn't have learned the trade of carpentry. If he had been with the Essenes, he wouldn't have learned the trade of carpentry. We know. I mean, there's no doubt about it. No matter what you hear, no matter what you read, and all the stupid rubbish that is going on nowadays about Jesus having an affair with Mag- Mary Magdalene and all that, oh, it just makes my blood boil. Well, the scripture is our final authority, and the scripture, ne- of course, he didn't have an affair with Mag- Mary Magdalene. That is insane. Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> The Lord Jesus did not choose, we find, he did not choose to have a private or a secret baptism. Instead, he came, I should have had that up there, he came to John at a time, and this is over in Luke, I didn't read this to you, but it says he came at a time when all the people were baptized. John was very, very busy proclaiming his message of repent, you know, and all that, and baptizing people who truly were repentant. And so the Lord came at a time to be baptized when there were many witnesses. That made his baptism a public event. It's also clear from the gospels that he came alone. He was led by only God the Holy Spirit to have, to be baptized. He did he was not accompanied by his mother Mary, he was not accompanied by a friend, he was not accompanied by any of his brothers. He came alone. And where was he baptized? In the Jordan River, John 1:28. we didn't look at that either, but it tells us that John the Baptist was baptizing in Bethabara on the day when the Lord came to baptize him. Bethabara was somewhere toward the southern end of the Jordan River in the wilderness between Jericho and the Dead Sea archaeologists do not know its precise location because it is no longer in existence under that name today but what is interesting is that the name and if you've been with us long enough you know that names in the scripture are always significant Bethabara means house of passage and that's interesting because this is the place where Jesus made his passage into his public ministry before this he's been in total obscurity now he makes his passage into his public ministry We also want to take note that Jesus began his ministry with prayer. Now, you didn't see that in Matthew's account either. Who do you think told us that? Nope. Luke. If you remember back when we were talking about Luke, we said Luke contains a lot of the... He he gives us a lot of the prayers that the other guys don't. Well, he didn't actually give us the words to the Lord's prayer, but he is the only one who mentions the fact that um, the Lord prayed at this time of his baptism. So this is our first recorded occasion of the lord praying in our life of christ study we do not know what he prayed because luke did not reveal that to us but this is just my uh, guess this is something perhaps what he might have prayed to his father he might have said something like this father i have come to do thy will and i am ready to begin the ministry for which thou hast sent me I am ready to begin my road to the cross as we have predetermined that I must do. And, of course, that was in eternity past, that we have predetermined that I must do in order to satisfy thy holy requirement for the sins of this world. I pray, Father, that thou might anoint me by thy Holy Spirit for this special task, and I pray that I might find approval in thy sight for my submission to thy will. That's possibly something like what the Lord might have prayed, but, of course, that's just my guess. But regardless of what the Lord said precisely, we learn from Luke that while John was bathing the Lord in water, Jesus was bathing himself in prayer, as he did throughout his ministry. Even though this is the first recorded prayer of the Lord, we know that he obviously prayed over and over again throughout his whole life, probably continuously in prayer with God his Father, even as a child. Okay, that is the... um, What did I do with my outline? I buried it. That is all we're going to say about the arrival of the Son. Let's move on now and look at the argument of John. And for this, you can stay in Matthew. We'll look at verses 14 and 15. But John forbade him. Forbade him what? Jesus came to be baptized. So John here forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, suffered him. In other words, he obeyed him, he went ahead and baptized him. As the heralding ambassador of the king, Remember, we have talked about the fact that Jesus, I mean, John, was the fulfillment of several prophecies in the Old Testament. He was the fulfillment of Malachi 3 1 and also Isaiah 40 verses 3 to 5. He was the voice crying in the wilderness to make the way straight and ready for the coming king. He was the herald of the Messiah. He prepared the way for the coming of the king by preaching repentance of sin. What is repentance? It's a changing of your mind and your attitude about your own sin, that we are all hopeless, helpless sinners in need of a savior, a sinless savior. Those who repented after hearing John's message gave public testimony of their repentance by submitting themselves to his water baptism. And John, for however long, some speculate only as long as six months, but he had been faithfully and continuously warning Israel that the kingdom of heaven was at hand because the king himself was on his way. And then, can you imagine, John, just, can you just imagine, because he's heard about Jesus all of his life, and then one glorious day, as he is busily engaged in preaching to the people and baptizing many people, all of a sudden he looks up and he sees Jesus coming toward him. Jesus, the firstborn son of Mary, heading, to, heading toward the, the water. Remember who Mary is in relationship to John. Mary and John's mother are cousins, therefore... John the Baptist and Jesus are also cousins. I don't know if Mary and Elizabeth were first cousins. If they were, that would make them, John and Jesus, second cousins. But they were definitely related. And at the sight of Jesus, John's heart probably just leapt within him. You know, just as it had leapt with, within his He himself had leapt within his mother's womb when the young virgin but pregnant mary some 31 years earlier had spoken words of greeting to his mother elizabeth remember when he it, that was a womb to womb experience You know, (laughs) Mary came in and she had just been impregnated by God, the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was within her womb. She walks in. She greets her cousin Elizabeth and John within Elizabeth just leaps for joy. So I could imagine now as an adult when his eyes look up and he beholds, maybe he had met Jesus somewhere along the line. Maybe they had gone to a Passover feast. I know they lived far apart. But, you know, the families all went to Jerusalem at, at three, three feasts a year. So perhaps their families had come together at some Passover feast, for example, and maybe as young teenagers or children or wherever they had met. I don't know. That's, again, that speculation. But now he looks up and he immediately knows it's his cousin. He knows it's Jesus. He also knows a whole lot of other things. And can't you just imagine the Holy Spirit within him, just his heart, just leaping for joy when he sees him? Now, we can assume, of course, that John's mother, Elizabeth, would have shared with her son the amazing circumstances regarding Mary's conception of Jesus and perhaps even other details regarding his birth as well. So, and from both of his parents, John would have heard all about the um, miraculous conception of Jesus and all the wonderful events that surrounded his, uh, his birth, etc. He would have heard that all of his life. So we find that the same man who had so brazenly and boldly called the Pharisees and the Sadducees right to their faces a generation of what? Of vipers was now the same man at the sight of Jesus. He was just totally overcome with the knowledge of his own unworthiness. He realized that he was not even worthy to stand before the one who was approaching him, much less to baptize him. And we know this because John, in protest to Jesus, uh, his desire to be baptized, said, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? He was confounded at even the thought of baptizing the Lord God's anointed one, the Messiah. His encounter with the Lord Jesus was a climactic and a dramatic event in the life of the Baptist, as it was also in the life of Jesus. It was for both of them a very climactic event. At one and the same time, the baptism of the Lord launched him into his public earthly ministry and began the decline of John the Baptist's ministry. John would henceforth begin to slip into the background while Jesus would begin to come to the forefront. And we're going to see in Lesson 17 that this presented a bit of a problem for some of John's disciples. They didn't like that. You know, they said, oh, this new guy is taking all your glory away from you. But John was at perfect peace with it because he understood that it was God's will. So he humbly stepped back and pointed men to Jesus, you know, in essence saying to men, Don't follow me, follow him. You know, my job is done. I must decrease. I must decrease, and he must increase. John understood this whole scenario. His purpose had been to announce the arrival of the king, and then when the king arrived, he knew and he understood that his mission was accomplished. As Jesus and John then came face-to-face, Matthew is the only one to record for us John's protest. That's why we're primarily focusing here on Matthew. He's the only one that tells us John protested this. His protest was not only a protest regarding his own lack of unworthiness to perform this baptism, but it was also, if you think about this, it was also a confirmation of the Lord's sinlessness. Even before and we're going to be going over this this morning in a little bit, but even before John witnessed the Holy Spirit of God descending upon Jesus in the form of a dove when he came up out of the waters of baptism, even before John saw that, see, that was a divine confirmation to him of who Jesus was. But even before he witnessed that, he believed that Jesus was the anointed one. He was the coming king. He was the Messiah. He understood that. With all the background information about Jesus that he would have heard, you know, from a child on, from his parents, and, of course, with the insight that he gained from being a man filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his mother's womb, he, I don't know what you'd call it, intuitively, he, he just knew Jesus his identity, his person, who he was the moment he saw him. Now, reading the Synoptic Gospels, do you remember who the Synoptic guys are? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what is called the Synoptic Gospels. So if you read them and the events at Bethabara here in connection with John's... um, Uh, baptism of the Lord Jesus, if you read those and then you flip over to John's gospel and you read his account of this baptism, you can get confused unless you understand the fact that the scriptures we're looking at this morning actually cover two days. Don't don't look at day three. Day three does not really occur, even though it, it follows sequentially in John. Day three doesn't occur until after the Lord goes into the wilderness and is tempted 40 days and 40 nights. Then he returns and we have day three at Bethabara. But the scriptures we're looking at this morning actually cover two days. The Lord's discussion, you know, the Lord arrives from Nazareth to Bethabara and uh, the Baptist refused, he says, no, you know, he protests, he says, I'm not going to baptize you. Jesus says, you need to do that, and then he's baptized. All of that is what we find, and then the Holy Spirit descends on him, okay? And then the Father from heaven gives his approval. All of that is what we find recorded for us in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And all of that is what occurs on day one. John, and we'll be looking at his... Um, his account in a little bit. John describes for us what happened on the next day, day two. And you actually read that in John 1 29. It says, The next day, the day after Jesus was baptized, that is the day that John the Baptist pointed his long finger when he saw Jesus approaching him the second day and made public his announcement Behold, the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world. Now, some of you might have been like me i used to think that when jesus came to john that's when john pointed his finger and said behold the lamb of god which cometh to take away the sins of the world it didn't happen that way the first day he actually protested he, you know i'm not going to baptize you he was baptized etc., cetera et cetera, but it was until the second day that he made his proclamation about him being the lamb of god so i just want you to understand that otherwise you can get a little bit confused Now, let's go back to the fact that even before John received the divine sign regarding Jesus' person, John knew who Jesus was. And that, of course, is why he protested baptizing him with words which, in essence, were, I can't baptize you, you should be baptizing me. To his servants' protest, the Lord answered these words. And these are the first recorded words... Of Jesus Christ as an adult now we had some words he spoke when he was 12 years old these are now the first recorded words of Jesus as a full-grown adult he says suffer it to be so now for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness in other words he told John go ahead and do it anyway it was then when John obeyed and actually baptized the Lord, that he saw the confirmation sign of the Holy Spirit descending upon the Lord like a dove. Now, we're going to get real serious here for a while. We have to discuss some kind of deep theology, but the question often arises as to why John initially protested baptizing Jesus. And to understand this, we need to, again, reiterate the meaning of John's baptism. Remember, John's baptism is no longer in existence. It's not the same as believer's baptism. Today, you and I, as a step of obedience to the Lord and his word, should be baptized following our salvation. After we accept Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior, we should then, first thing, be baptized as a step of obedience and as a step of identifying ourselves with him and his death, burial, and resurrection. We'll get more into that a little bit later. But John's baptism was a baptism unto the repentance of sin. Those who were baptized by John came both confessing and repenting of their sins. See, actually, if you think about it, before the Lord came and went to the cross... People had to, they were looking, they, they confessed their sins and they repented and they were looking forward to the coming of the one who would die for their sins. So they were baptized before. <laughs> and we, on the other side of the cross, first, you know, we recognize and understand who he is and what he did for us and then we're baptized after we accept that. Of course, there was a transition period. So those who did get baptized by John's baptism also after they accepted Christ need to be baptized again. We don't need that. We only need to be baptized once. So anyway, that they were baptized and they came by John. They were confessing and repenting of their sins. And what we have here is that John, you see, when in protesting that he would not baptize Jesus, he was recognizing and acknowledging that Jesus had no need to confess his sins. Because why? He had no sins. He was sinless. He had nothing, absolutely nothing, of which to repent. So it's very fitting that John would question why the sinless king himself would want to be baptized. I mean, why should the one who came to take away the sins of the whole world, why should he submit himself to a ceremony which was an outward evidence of an inward confession of sin? So we find, you know, that John was really doing his job here. He was truly, truly a prophet of God because he was giving his testimony as to the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Matthew 3.15, we find something interesting. We find that in the Lord's first recorded words as an adult, he did not deny two things. First of all, he did not deny that he was spiritually Uh, superior to john why didn't he deny that because he was and is spiritually superior to john secondly he didn't deny the fact of his sinlessness and that is very important jesus clearly also clearly understood that john's reluctance to baptize him came from a genuinely humble and sincere heart you know other other times as we go through our Life of Christ study, we'll see that when his disciples refuse whatever he says to do, like Peter, you know, says, no way. No way. Am I going to let you wash my feet, Lord? The Lord rebukes them for that. But notice he doesn't rebuke John because he understood that uh, John's... John here was really right in essence, saying, I can't, you know, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You don't have any sin. You don't need to confess sin, your sin. So he didn't rebuke him. He merely gave John permission to do what otherwise John would never have done without divine permission. You see? The Lord said to John, in effect, go ahead and baptize me anyway. Even though it doesn't seem appropriate to you, it is appropriate for this particular special time, and then he gave the reason. He said, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. He was telling John that baptizing him was important for both of them to accomplish so as to be perfectly, to, to perfectly and completely fulfill God's righteous program, God's righteous plan. Not only was Jesus to be baptized, but he was specifically to be baptized by John. No one else would have done. It had to be the uh, fulfillment of the prophecy regarding the herald of the Messiah. It had to be John who baptized him. However, those, I know your little brains, no, your big brains are clicking away and you're still thinking, well, we still have this perplexing question about why John, the Lord would be baptized in the first place. If John's baptism was a baptism of both repentance and confession of sin, then why was Jesus baptized by John at all? Now, the first thing. And answering that, the first thing that we need to really understand is that the Lord's baptism by John the Baptist did not indicate, not indicate, a confession of sin on the Lord's part, as is taught by liberal scholars and preachers. And if you don't believe me, just get on the Internet and look up the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ and see how many say this was his admittance of the fact that he was a sinner, One such man is named Middleton Murray. He wrote a book called Jesus, Man of Genius. And here are his blasphemous words. He says, quote, Jesus has come as more than a sinner, but as a sinner, he has indeed come. Whatever this man was, speaking of Jesus, he was the incarnation of honesty. He would have sought no baptism for the remission of sins had he not been conscious of his sin, end of quote. Tragically, That is a typical statement from liberal theology, which teaches that the Lord's baptism does indeed prove, gives us evidence of the fact that Jesus was aware of his own sinfulness. And that is a bunch of rubbish. They say that this was his public confession of his repentance for his sins. Now, that is why you and I have to really understand how to combat such heretical teaching. It is very very critical. The liberals perspective on Christ's sinfulness is for one thing, and here's what you really need to understand and know, as most of you probably already do, it is completely inconsistent with the teaching of scripture. If scripture contradicts itself, then it is not god-inspired. And God's word said that it says that it is God-inspired. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And if we believe that, then we know that God would never contradict himself. You need to always approach scripture with the attitude that it doesn't contradict itself. So if this looks like a contradiction, I must be thinking wrong. Well, they are indeed thinking wrong. The uniform teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ was, is, always will be completely sinless. Let's look at just a few verses that show this to us. Actually, next week, when you come back, Lord willing, we will look at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, tempted by Satan himself, the worst tempter of all, and there he proved he is totally sinless. We'll discuss the question, is the Lord, was the Lord peccable or impeccable? Could he have sinned? We know he was tempted, but could he have succumbed to that temptation and actually sinned? Was he peccable, or was he impeccable? Was there no way he would ever, could ever have sinned and given in to that temptation? That's another big question. We'll look at that next week. But let's look at some scriptures like Second Corinthians 5.21. says, for he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. Now, there is a big difference in him becoming sin for us and him being a sinner big difference he became sin for us who knew no sin now that's speaking of Jesus who knew no sin why did he become the one who knew no sin Become sin for us so that we who have no righteousness might be made the righteousness of God in him what a great exchange <laughs> and it's totally free he who had no sin became sin for us so that we who had no righteousness could become the righteousness of God in him and all we have to do is believe he died in our place. I mean, that, what greater gift could there be? There, there is no greater gift. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as, like as we are, yet without sin. First Peter 2, 21 and 22 it says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. First John three five, and ye know that he, Christ, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. The Bible very clearly speaks of a Savior, thank God who knew no sin, did no sin, and in whom there was no sin. So it makes no sense, it is totally illogical, that the Lord would want to be baptized in order to make a public confession of his sin. And the Baptist understood this. The Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of his mother's womb. He knew this. He knew that Jesus was perfectly sinless. And that, of course, is why he protested baptizing him. If Jesus had wanted John's baptism for repentance of his sin, what would that indicate to us? It would indicate that he also, like all those other people who were baptized confessing their sins and repenting of their sins, those people were waiting for the coming one who would take care of their sins, the coming king. This would mean that Jesus was also waiting for the coming of a savior who would take care of his sins. And if Jesus was waiting for a savior, we're all lost because there was no other man, no other man ever can come, no other man ever will come who fulfilled all of the messianic prophecies like the Lord Jesus Christ. Just take his genealogical record alone. All the genealogical record of every Jew was destroyed in 70 AD. There is no man since the time of Jesus who could come along and prove that he's the Messiah. He couldn't prove he even went back to David, much less to Abraham and all the way back to Adam. So if Jesus Christ is not our Savior, we are hopelessly, helplessly lost for all of eternity. So why be a liberal theologian and say he was confessing his sin and then still pretend to be a Christian? I mean, it's totally illogical. Might as well throw out the Bible and just become Muslim or something. I don't know. Other Bible students have suggested that Jesus was baptized by John in order to be, um, and this isn't, this isn't so bad, I mean, this is not nearly as bad as what the liberals say, and a lot of people, at, at one point I probably would have gone along with this and said, well, that makes sense, that he was baptized in order to be um, anointed into his priestly office. And they use the fact that he was um, baptized, and we didn't look at this, but if you look over at Luke three twenty three. It says that at the time of his baptism he was about 30 years of age, which means he could have been 29 years and 10 months or something like that or 31 years and 1 month, etc., but he was about 30 years of age. So they use this age to support their view that he was baptized in order to be anointed into his priestly office because according to numbers 430, when an Old Testament priest was inducted into his office as a priest, there, it was followed by a ritual which included a ceremonial washing with water. So that sounds good up front. However, if you go four chapters over from Numbers four to Numbers chapter eight, the age for indoctrination of the into the priesthood changes. It goes down to the age of 25. And then, if you go over to the First Chronicles 23:24, the age to be indoctrinated or anointed into the priesthood lowers to even 20 years of age. So the Lord's age at the time of his baptism is not evidential support for the idea of him being baptized in order to be anointed into the priesthood. Also, even though it's true that Jesus was set apart by God the Father to be a priest, he was of which tribe? Which tribe did he come from? Judah. To be a Levitical priest, which tribe did you have to come from? The tribe of Levi. So you see, Jesus actually disqualified to be a Levitical priest. He disqualified for the Levitical priesthood. Neither did he qualify to be um, a high priest, technically a high priest of Israel, because they had to descend from Aaron, the brother of Moses. That's what we call the Aaronic priesthood. Jesus didn't descend from Aaron. So he disqualified for both the Levitical priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood. And there would have been no point in baptizing him into an office for which he was ineligible. Jesus Christ was a priest after the order of who? That mysterious man named Melchizedek, Hebrews chapter 7. His induction into that special priestly office, the, you know, the priestly office after the order of Melchizedek, however, was to be performed not by John the Baptist, but, but by the Lord's heavenly father, and it was not to occur until after the Lord's resurrection. The Lord Jesus is indeed our high priest, Right? but not after the order of Aaron, after the order of Melchizedek. And he is not our high priest here. He wasn't a high priest while he was on earth during his time, the time of his um, earthly ministry. He is the believer's high priest where? In heaven. And, and he did not become our high priest until after His resurrection. Therefore, we can conclude that John's baptism of Jesus Christ was not to induct him either into the Levitical, the Aaronic, or the Melchizedekian priesthoods. Period. What we need to understand when we come to the subject of Christ's baptism is that it was distinctly unique from every other kind of baptism that has ever existed. So when you think of the Lord's baptism, don't associate it with any other kind of baptism. Don't associate it with proselyte baptism, which was for any Gentile um, who was converted to Judaism. Nor was it, even though he was baptized by John, it wasn't really john's baptism which was for the repentance of sin neither was it what you and i experienced today in believers baptism that's for new testament believers to publicly identify ourselves with christ's death burial and resurrection everything about the lord's baptism remains distinctly unique as is true with everything about him he is definitely distinctly unique generally speaking We're going to talk specifically, but first of all, we're going to talk generally. Generally speaking, the Lord's baptism was a baptism of identification. The Greek word, which is translated in our Bibles, our English Bibles, as the word baptize. The Greek word is very similar. You would recognize it, except the Greek letters look funny. But it is the word baptizo. And it literally means to immerse or to... um, Uh, Dip, or to dye, not D-I-E, but D-Y-E. It was what first century people did with fabric, which they wanted to dye, you know, to color. They totally immersed the fabric into a colored solution so that it was then identified with that color. When it was then brought back up out of the dye tub, it remained whatever color, of course, it had been dyed. And this is the literal meaning of the word baptizo, baptized. And, you know, I don't have any axe to grind. I really don't, so don't come to me and complain, you know, whether you're sprinkled or uh, poured or dipped or whatever. But this is um, support for baptism by immersion, as is the fact that the Lord came up out of the waters of baptism. That's generally, metaphorically, or that's literally what the word means. But metaphorically, the word baptize in Greek means to identify with. And this is how it's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-2, where Paul wrote these words. He said, moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, you read that and you say, what is Paul talking about there? The Israelites weren't in the waters of the Red Sea. It was the Egyptians (laughs) who were in the waters of the Red Sea. They're the ones who were covered with the water and drowned. However, he said that it was the Israelites who were baptized unto Moses. Why? Well, because metaphorically, the word baptizo means to be identified with. When the Jews left Egypt... When they left Pharaoh and Egypt and went through the Red Sea, uh, of course, you know they went across on dry ga- ground. had nothing to do with the water. The water was up on the sides. But their identification changed from being identified with Pharaoh and with the Egyptians to now being identified with who? Moses. They were baptized under Moses, so they're now identified with Moses and with the God of Moses, which is the you know, true and living Jehovah God. When the Lord was baptized, you see, he was identifying himself with three main things here. You see it, up that up here under A, B, and C. First of all, he was identifying himself with John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Messiah. So it's very important that he identify himself with John, because everybody knew John was the herald of the coming Messiah, the herald of the coming king. And he also was identifying himself with John's message, which was, in a nutshell, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why was the kingdom of heaven at hand? Because the king was coming. So by his public baptism, Jesus, in essence, was saying to the crowd and therefore to the nation of Israel and really therefore to the whole world, he was saying, I am identifying myself with this man, John, Because I am the one whom he has been heralding. Secondly, Jesus was identifying himself by his baptism with the godly remnant in Israel. John's message convicted men and women to get back into a right relationship with Jehovah God and back to believing in God's promise to send the Messiah who would then establish the kingdom. And this believing remnant of Israelites and even some Gentiles, remember who was in the crowd waiting to be baptized and asking him questions? Uh, Roman soldiers. Gentiles were even there. Who was in that crowd? The common people, mostly. There were some Sadducees and Pharisees, but they were there just to criticize. We had common people. We had Roman Gentile soldiers. We had base sinners, such as publicans. We're going to find out in a couple weeks that who else was there? Andrew and john and they went and got peter and james so he's identifying himself with this believing remnant of israelites and some gentiles who were bound together by the sign we could call it the sign of john's baptism he notice he didn't choose the lord did not choose to identify himself with the religious leaders of israel did he When he launched his public ministry, did he march into Jerusalem and go straight to the temple and say, well, I'm going to identify myself with you guys, Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, no. He didn't go out and get himself a little dagger either to identify himself with the zealots. And he didn't go out to live in the the caves around the Dead Sea and identify himself with the Essenes. Instead, he purposely chose to identify himself with the believing remnant who were awaiting the fulfillment of God's messianic promises. So, His baptism identified him with that little family of believers in the midst of a perverse nation, in the midst of a pagan world, who had repented and were waiting for the Savior King and the promised kingdom that he would bring. Thirdly, his baptism also identified him with sinners and with their sins. Those who were coming to John to be baptized were coming in order to confess both their sins and their need for a Savior who would redeem them. From those sins, so he came to identify himself with sinners, so that through that identification he might become their sin substitute. He could not purchase the righteousness of God for mankind if he did not identify himself with mankind's sin. Now that does not mean, as I said earlier, that does not mean that he sinned, but that that he, although innocent of any sin, Willingly took upon himself the guilt and penalty of all men's sin. Long before the Lord's actual crucifixion, you know, Isaiah had actually predicted that the Messiah would be numbered among the transgressors. And yet, he himself would bear the sin of many and make intercession for them. That's in Isaiah 53, verse 12. So the Lord's baptism was his first step in the redemptive plan that he came. He who had no sin, as I said, was putting himself in a place of identification with those who had no righteousness. He took his place among the sinners of this world because there was no other way, way to fulfill all righteousness. Remember, that's what he said to John. We have to do this so that we fulfill all righteousness. Now, all of that was generally. Now, specifically, what he did by way of his baptism was to consecrate himself. This is real technical, and I know it's going to take you mulling over your notes to get all of this, but hopefully just hearing this verbally, and then when you read the notes, it will make better sense to you. But he was consecrating himself. Um, his, John's baptism, as I've said over and over, was a, rep- a baptism unto the repentance of sins. So when the Lord took his first step into his public ministry, which was the step here of his baptism, He was consecrating himself or dedicating himself to die upon the cross for those sinners who had been baptized by John, confessing their sins and repenting of their sins. Of course, we know he also uh, committed himself to die upon the cross for all those yet future believers like you and I who would also be baptized in order to publicly proclaim our repentance and our faith in what he already did on our behalf. You know, when the Lord in Luke twelve fifty said, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how am I straight until it be accomplished? What he was saying there was uh, that he, he knew he was going to the cross. You know, he was, he was anticipating his death, which he referred to there as his baptism. His baptism by John in the Jordan River was considered by Christ himself as an anticipation of his future death and burial, you know, to the waters of baptism, and resurrection up out of the waters of baptism. Remember on another occasion, and I always thought this was kind of funny, when these two guys, John and James, brothers, sons of thunder, remember when they sent their mother to Jesus to request that they get the best seats in the house in the kingdom, I want to sit on the right and left side of Jesus? And then I think they even had the nerve to come to him themselves. That didn't make the other disciples too happy <laughs> with these guys. But uh, the Lord's answer to them was, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of, or, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He wasn't speaking to them there about water baptism. That would have been no problem. Yeah, of course, they could have been baptized in water. What he was speaking of, of course, was... Um, his immersion into death and his resurrection out of death. Well, the Lord's baptism was not only one of identification and consecration and anticipation, it was also one of exemplification. And just to say that very shortly, he, he did, everything he did was as an example to you and I. Even though he was the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he was the creator of the whole universe, he, he didn't have to pay taxes to Caesar, but he did it anyway. Why? To set an example for us. He didn't need to be baptized, but he did it, well, he did for these other reasons, but he also did it as an example for you and I, that that is a step of obedience you and I need to take. Of course, it's not the same baptism as John's or even as the Lord's, but we do have our own baptism, believer's baptism. And lastly, Christ, his baptism was a confirmation to John as to who he is. John the Baptist stated um, that he didn't know him, um, until he saw the spirit of, well, he did intuitively, but he, it wasn't confirmed to him divinely until he saw the spirit descending and remaining on him. So it was; it served as a confirmation to John that yes, this is indeed the Messiah. Okay, quickly, no, we're running out of time here. Um, let's look at the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and I lost my outline again, Terry. Did I do? Okay. (laughs) Got to keep an eye on me. Let's look at Matthew 3.16 and then we'll read John because we do have to look at what John says. All right. Matthew 3.16 says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and, lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And, lo, a voice from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I went ahead and read that, so... Uh, We'll cover that in the next section. Let's look at John 1, 28 to 34. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, we're going to read about the second day, okay? The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, For he was before me. Remember, that's John speaking of the fact that he understood that the one coming was eternal. Even though Jesus was born six months after John, physically, John understood that he had always existed from eternity past. Verse 31, and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me. See, he had had a a prediction from God the Holy Spirit, I mean a prophecy, telling him before he even saw Jesus that he would know him because he would see the Spirit descending and remaining on him. So that was his confirming divine sign that Jesus truly was the Messiah. This same is he which baptizes Baptized Zith with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Well, so at the moment that Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism, uh, the heavens were open, and this is when John, of course, saw the Spirit of God descend on Jesus like what? Like a dove. And um, it's, it, it might be a point of interest to you that this is uh, the only time in the scriptures where the Holy Spirit is in the form of a dove. I know we all often see doves at the Christian bookstore, et cetera, but this is the one and only time that he is represented as a dove. Why would God send the Holy Spirit on this one occasion in this particular form as a dove? Well, probably because to the Jewish mind, a dove would be associated with what? Remember when Mary and Joseph took Jesus when he was eight days old to be circumcised, and they carried with them two turtle doves. There are two creatures mentioned in our scripture for today, a dove and a lamb, and both of them are associated in the Jewish mind with sacrifice, and that's important because, of course, he came to be our ultimate sacrifice for sin. Now, this is interesting. This isn't in your notes, but... um, there's only one other time in the scripture where there is a specific dove mentioned. Now, doves are mentioned, but there's only one other time where a, a dove is mentioned. And can anybody think when that might have been? Right, when we did our study on Noah's Ark. If you're interested, if you missed that, we have a little tape album on it. Right. Now, think about this. The dove which Noah sent out from the ark The only uncorrupted place on the face of the earth that that dove could land was the ark, the ark of safety. Remember, the ark is a picture in type of the Lord Jesus Christ because there's only one place of safety from judgment and condemnation and perishing. And that was the ark. You had to be in the ark to be safe from judgment and condemnation and the wrath of God. Just like in Christ only are we safe from the judgment and the condemnation of perishing. Okay? So the only place the dove could land was on Noah's ark of safety. And uh, that ark was in the midst of waters which covered the whole face of the earth. And now we have here, the second time a specific dove is mentioned, The dove comes down from heaven, and there's only one place on the whole face of the earth that that dove can land on something that is uncorruptible, on a place of incorruption, and that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And where is he standing? In the midst of the waters of baptism. So that is a, a nice picture. Okay, The the uh, there's more to say, but you can read it in your notes. Let's just look real quickly at the approval of the Father. I read that to you after the dove descended on the Lord. God spoke from heaven. This is the first of three times where God's voice was heard speaking from heaven. <clears throat> the second time will be at the transfiguration of the Lord. And I don't think we'll get to that for four or five years. <laughs> so... Uh, the heavens were open, and God said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Even though the Holy uh, Trinity is mentioned throughout the Old Testament scriptures, it is most clearly manifested on the occasion of Jesus' baptism. You know, I thought it was interesting to think about the fact that just as we found the triune God working together, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit working together at the beginning of the Old Testament because all three of them were involved in the creative work. And then we heard them saying in Genesis 126, let us make man in our image. Now we also find the triune Godhead working together at the beginning of the New Testament except this time at the Lord's baptism they're saying let us save man. At the baptism, Christ was there. He's the second person of the triune God, and of course he was there. He was there dedicating himself to do both his Father's will and his Father's work. The Holy Spirit was there. He descended from heaven in the form of a dove to empower Christ to do the Father's work and the Father's will. And then the Father himself spoke from heaven in order to, to, to declare his great approval of his son who was willing to do his will and his work isn't that scripture wonderful all right thank you for your patience and all my floundering around up here but let's go to the lord in prayer father thank you thank you thank you this morning that our lord jesus christ is our promised redeemer He is the promised seed of the woman, the Messiah, the King of kings, our Savior, our Lord. Father, from the very beginning, you undertook to send him to this world. And with his incarnation and his sacrifice and his substitution for man, you are well pleased. Thank you, Father, that in him your holy law is fully discharged and that through him you are willing to receive we poor sinners, into your presence by your mercy and your grace and your love. Thank you, Father, that if we believe in Jesus Christ, you see nothing in us that his death did not abundantly pardon. Forever, Father, may we bless you and praise you and glorify your name, that in a dying world we are able to turn to a living Savior, because being joined to the Lord Jesus by faith, we shall rise again to live forevermore. And the second death shall have no power over us. Because Jesus has said, because I live, ye shall live also. And it is in his precious name we pray. Amen.